As a person who usually sits out there, I'm honored to, be, to begin a series of Advent meditations on embodiment up here. When Nathan asked me to speak about embodiment, I thought of one person, Lizzo. If that name isn't familiar, Lizzo is a singer and a rapper who rose to prominence over the last few years. Her music is joyful and eclectic in style. Think Prince and Lauryn Hill and Janet Jackson. Her lyrics and rapping are often funny and self-aware, as well as fiercely proud of her large body and dark skin. A few weeks ago, I got to see Lizzo in concert. I was a tad too optimistic about Moda Center parking, so I didn't arrive until after Lizzo had taken the stage, which meant that I came into the arena to a huge crowd in the lit up dark. Lizzo's image projected four stories high, the stage full of bass and whirling bodies. As I peered at the crowd in the dark, all on their feet and singing along, I saw people of all kinds of genders. There were couples, groups of friends, even families. In front of me, a woman helped her young daughter balance as she stood up on a seat to see. And the crowd was decked out in boas and sequins, as well as the usual Portland fleece. It felt overwhelming to be in a room of that many joyous people singing together. I also couldn't quite believe I was really safe there, especially after the last years of pandemic life. At one point in the concert, Lizzo lounged at the end of the catwalk on a velvet chaise, ready to begin an R&B number, and told us to take out our phones. Many of you might remember when people used to pull out their lighters at concerts and hold the flames aloft. The current equivalent is this, as her instruction moved through the crowd, people took phones from their pockets and flicked on the flashlights. Little by little, the darkness became notched with 14,000 stars from the ceiling all the way to the floor. And my first thought was, it's like the Easter Vigil. So obviously, I am a born and raised Episcopalian and also not a big attender of arena shows. <laughs> um, and the Easter Vigil is my favorite service of the year because it is Episcopal ritual at its finest. Fire, water, darkness, song and storytelling, and light. The slow approach of the Paschal candle down the aisle. The passing flames from one person to the next until the whole nave is lit from below. That sense of danger in juggling the candle through all those stories and chants, and that triumph when the organ tsunamis into the glitter of an Easter church. At the Lizzo show, it was the same collective light making and awe at the pyrotechnics and shared grief and joy at the stories heard. To me, it felt the same. Though I confess many of my Portland friends might resist that comparison. I am a poet, and writers, especially poets, make comparisons like that all the time. The idea of a metaphor is that after you hear it, you think about both parts of the comparison in new ways. So making art 
requires noticing the bits of disparate things that seem somehow strangely connected. A writer must observe, pay attention, focus. When I was pregnant, I felt that kind of focus and awareness very deeply, and I wrote a lot. It feels cliche to say so, but it's true. I felt more connected to the divine power of creation than I ever had. Despite the fact that my body was doing all kinds of things I hadn't expected, I wrote poems. I prayed. I felt the glow of the divine. But that unity with the divine and mystical, when my child was born, it all disappeared. <laughs> I was still closely aware of the world, but in fear. Everything was a source of possible danger. The plastic of her bottles and cups, the angle of her car seat, the vegetables that contained heavy metals, the person who might breathe RSV into her tiny body. My already active hypervigilance went into overdrive, and I lived full time in flight or fight mode. I had what are clinically called intrusive thoughts, terrifying flashes of specific ways in which the baby might get hurt or killed, some of which I would be responsible for. I was experiencing significant postpartum anxiety and depression. And why wouldn't I? Having spent my life as a woman, I knew that within minutes of turning on the TV, I'd see a feminine person being verbally or physically menaced. I'd absorbed how to dress so I would not provoke anyone's attention with the idea that I could stay safe that way. I knew already that the world was a dangerous place, and now I had to somehow protect my child from it as well. Not only that, but I was the mother of a daughter and two after my second was born. Even now, I worry about ending up in a room with someone holding a gun, or the Cascadia subduction zone finally making its move. I look for the exits. I make plan after plan, trying to control the uncontrollable. This is the kind of fear that it seems the scriptures invoke today. But about the day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Then two will be left in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In other words, you better be ready or God will catch you out. In my postpartum suffering, prayers to a God like that seemed useless, even offensive. The awakeness was what was killing me. How could a God like that help with intrusive thoughts, with panicked distress? I felt betrayed. So, in desperation, I went looking for a book. I went looking for a parenting book. There's so much parenting advice, I thought. Surely I could find one that addressed the swirling confusion of parenting a newborn, then a toddler, in a way that would make me feel like God was present. Hmm, do not Google faith-based parenting book, my friends. <laughs> do not do that. But. Somewhere in the midst of all the sexist sunrise color nonsense, I found Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg's book, Nurture the Wow. Rabbi Ruttenberg writes, let's face it, 
For thousands of years, books on Jewish law and lore were written by men, mostly talking to other men. These guys were, by and large, not engaged in the intimate care of small people. Somewhere else, far from the house of study, other people, women, mothers, were wrangling tantrumy toddlers and explaining to six-year-olds that they really have to eat what was on their plate. For most of history, the people who were raising children weren't writing books. This made sense to me as to why I felt shut out by the main voices in my own Christian tradition, most of whom were male. I traced Mary's words over and over. I tried to remember the tiny bits I'd heard about early Christian women like Mary Magdalene, like Thecla and Perpetua, saints like Teresa of Avila and Catherine, but it felt like an awful thin thread to hold on to. Rabbi Ruttenberg cautions, though, that it's not all a loss. She encourages parents to seek support in sacred texts as she says, even though centuries worth of writing about what spirituality is and how to access it were developed by men who were often oblivious to one of the most transformative experiences a human can have, parenting, there are still a ton of great resources, frameworks, concepts, and lenses already sitting in the theological library of the ages. I thought, I hoped, I could find solace by reading more deeply into my own tradition, the Christianity I've been trying to practice. I'm still hoping it's true. For example, in today's collect, we ask God to give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility, in great humility, well, there is nothing more humbling, I know, than living and aging in a human body. Having a woman's body in the world, let alone a pregnant body in the world. And my body is an acceptable size and shape. My skin is white enough. And still, I have been taught by the world that my body is dangerous, that it is unpredictable. People feel that it is their right to comment on this body, that they should help me control it. Women all over the world, let alone non-gender conforming people, are taught that our bodies are sinful, that they are ungodly. Thousands of people in Iran are risking their lives to say no to these things right now. Then why not just ditch it, this tradition, or even religion altogether? I've heard that question before. <laughs> why would a nice, well-educated woman like me, progressive, queer, stick around in a religion like this? In the end, it is the story of Advent to which I return, the story of incarnation. God showed up in a body, a human body, through a human body. God came out of a body like this one, can live in a body like this one. Humanness is not foreign to God, but a holy condition, good enough even for him. So yes, we could take the gospel reading as another call to be on guard, to push past our exhaustion, to continue sleepless, hypervigilant, on edge. But I invite us today to sit in another kind of anticipation that the human body knows, and that is the anticipation of birth. 
No matter where you are in your relationship to your own body and no matter your gender, I invite you to imagine that waiting. You know that it will be an enormous amount of work, even that, even that you will be in mortal danger. You cannot predict the ways your life will be transformed again and again because of this experience. You can pack the best hospital bag, buy all the right things, plan for different scenarios, but deep down, there is no way to truly prepare yourself, and you have to make peace with that. In the birth class I took with my husband, the teacher said to birthing people, it will not happen the way you plan. And she also said, this is the biggest letting go that you will ever do. And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> I like to be in control. Um, but in this case, letting go was about allowing a larger force to take hold. What is faith but a singular lack of control? And especially this faith that we practice, accepting a God who is born as a helpless baby and dies on a cross, and then, if we dare to believe it, defeats death. We come here together at the start of this pregnant season. We do not know how things will go, and we cannot control them. We know that the world is deeply broken, just as it was in Jesus' time. And yet, we dream. We dream into the future for one who is coming. We imagine making for them a place, a good place, a place where we melt all the guns into plowshares and all the bombs into pruning hooks. Advent is a season of prophecy, so I will leave you with a vision. A cave-like room, a crush of people gathered, a star rising up from a trap door in the stage, her thick and beautiful and brown and fully human body covered in sequins and rhinestones so that the light shining out is projected in every corner of that room, an armor of light that illuminates every color, age, gender, family structure, wrapped in boas and sequins, dancing and singing, holding each other close. It is in that hope that we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, or in the words of the prophet Lizzo's greatest hit, it's about damn time. Amen. <laughs>